Today we're talking about a very specific day on the church calendar. It's a day that we call Palm Sunday. It was on this day, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus entered Jerusalem and was greeted by zealous, enthusiastic crowds waving palm branches and hailing him as Messiah, King of Israel, Son of David, the one who would sit on the throne and lead his people from slavery, bondage, to freedom. It's a day that was a defining day in the life of Jesus. And friend, friends, I believe it's a day that has been often misinterpreted and not fully understood by Christians throughout the centuries, even in the church. In this moment, Jesus very deliberately and very intentionally will make some statements about himself, who he is, why he has come, the kind of king he will be, and the kind of kingdom he intends to lead. This event in the life of Christ, it's it's calculated, it's specific, it's chosen, and it is very precisely timed. Jesus here knows exactly what he is doing. He knows exactly where he's going. He understands fully his fate. In our story, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time. He enters the city of God's holy people, and on his mind is not a throne, but a cross. Now to fully understand the scene here, to fully grasp the vibe and the climate and what went down on that day, we must first back up. We must take a step back and look at the journey Jesus has traveled up to this point. First is this crucial question. Crucial question. Why is Jesus... Going to Jerusalem, why does he make this journey to God's holy city? Well, the answer is very simple. It's one word, Passover. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, along with many others, to celebrate Passover. And Passover is the most significant and most popular of the Jewish annual festivals. Passover is this this event that happens every year where Jewish people gather to celebrate how God delivered them from Egyptian slavery and bondage. Passover is a festival that had become primarily about freedom. This is a a freedom celebration. This is a people who celebrate freedom. This is a people gathered together to remember the freedom they've been given and to long for freedom that they might have again. Friends, Passover is like 4th of July on steroids, except for it's 4th of July in a moment when we are no longer free. It's celebrating being set free before we were not free again. Passover is the most significant, the most popular of these festivals. It's a time for remembering how God told his people to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood over the door frames of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over and not harm the firstborn sons of the Jewish families. It's about how God used this event, this moment, to set his people free. Passover, friends, is a very big deal. And the place to celebrate Passover was then and still is today in Jerusalem. Every year, Jews from every corner of the world make their way to Jerusalem for this, the greatest of Judaism's national events. 
Even still, in our world today, this happens. Jews come from all over the globe to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. In fact, if they can't make it, if they can't get there, for some reason, Jerusalem is not their destination for Passover. They have this saying, there's this saying in Judaism, and some of you have heard it because Jews say it even still today. This year here, they'll say, wherever they are, this year here, next year in Jerusalem. There's this dream of being in Jerusalem for Passover. Jerusalem in the first century, in Jesus' day, was a city of about 50,000 people. You can see it there on the screen, kind of an artist's rendering of what it would have been like. And scholars debate the actual numbers, but, but a conservative, a very conservative estimate for the number of people who would come to Jerusalem, who would stay in and around Jerusalem during the time of a Passover in the first century, is between 200 and 250,000 So from 50,000 to 250,000, and again, those are conservative numbers. Many scholars believe it would have grown much larger. There would be many more, but at least 200 to 250,000. The point here is that this is a city that would literally multiply in size because all these people have come from all over Israel and even beyond to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And this year, on this day, in this moment, the one that we're looking at today, along with all these people coming to Jerusalem for Passover, comes this legendary, this this extremely famous and well-known Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he's traveling um, on this road from Jericho. This is the route that Jesus would have taken, if you can see it there on the map. It's the route that Jesus would have taken into Jerusalem, preparing to go there for Passover. This is predominantly an uphill journey. You need to know this. Jericho is over there by the Dead Sea. You see, just south of Jericho, the Dead Sea is right there. And what's the Dead Sea known for? Right? The Dead Sea is known for a few things. It's known for being a very salty lake. You see the guy here? It's, it's such a salty lake that the density of the water makes you so buoyant that you can sit on top of it literally. This guy has no... You think like he's probably sitting on a floaty? He is not sitting on a floaty. How many of you have been to the Dead Sea? How many of you have like floated the way this guy floated in the Dead Sea? Yeah, it, it's amazing. I have not done it myself, but, but I've seen lots of pictures and heard from lots of people. And uh, it's just this dense salt water. And the reason it is so dense and so salty is because of the second and main point about the Dead Sea that I want to make this morning, and that's this. It is the the area of the lowest land elevation on the planet. You cannot stand on land and be farther below sea level than you can at the Dead Dead Sea. It is actually 1,401 feet below sea level, and that is according to Wikipedia. In other words, who knows if that's right? No, I'm kidding. Um, And those of you who are sort of Wikipedia snobs, Wikipedia is has been proven to be as accurate as Encyclopedia Britannica. But um, it's actually true. 1,400 feet below sea level. That's, that's the Dead Sea. And Jericho, again, if we look at the map, is right near the Dead Sea. It's way below sea level. And then this road, this 17-mile road from Jericho to Jerusalem, just goes up and up and up because Jerusalem sits up on top of a plateau. And Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So there's about a a 4,000 foot gain in elevation over this 17 miles. 
It's a, it's a long, windy, narrow road, at times only several feet wide, with extremely steep cliffs on either side at some points. You can see it here in the visual, just to give you a sense of what it would have been like to walk this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And friends, here's where I need you to picture. Here's, here's what I need you to understand. On this road, during the time when Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, there would have been literally tens of thousands of pilgrims walking these paths. All lined up, all packed together, all journeying as a caravan towards the city to celebrate the festival of freedom and deliverance. It's like a moving party. A moving celebration with all the anticipation of getting there and being in Jerusalem together for Passover. Can you just picture and imagine and feel the climate and the energy and the excitement? And friends, this kind of moving party and caravan of people on its way from Jericho to Jerusalem just happens to go right through another little town, a little town called Bethany. Again, you can see it there on the map. Bethany was about two miles to the east of Jerusalem. John chapter 12 tells us this. You can follow along with me on the screens today. Six days before the Passover. So now we're getting there. We're getting close, right? Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, this is an extremely important fact that John gives us here. Do not miss how critical this information is. Do not miss the scene that's being, that's being set, the, the picture that's being painted here. Do not miss it. This is so important because Lazarus, this guy Jesus is now eating with, he was dead. At one time, just months earlier, he was dead. And not just kind of dead, but dead dead. The autopsy had been completed and his body had been prepared for burial. And he had been in the tomb for four full days. But then what happens? Jesus had shown up. He had come onto the scene. And in front of a large crowd with observers and witnesses, he had spoken those famous words. You remember what they were? Lazarus, come forth. And when Lazarus had come strolling out of that tomb, the buzz and excitement and energy surrounding this rabbi from Nazareth Nazareth had risen to levels of epic proportions. In this one act, Jesus created this, this virtual groundswell of intrigue that just resonated out and started rippling across the entire Jewish world. And now it's six days before Passover, six days before the celebration of freedom, six days before the freedom party, and now Jesus is in Bethany, just two miles away, hanging out with Lazarus again. And all these people, the people we talked about earlier, who are traveling this road and walking to Jerusalem and preparing for the celebration, all the ones who are going there for this party, many of them would have traveled right through Bethany and the word was spreading again. Most of these folks were, by the way, from the north. You can see there on the map. Most of them were traveling. Yep, that one. We were there just for a sec. Back. 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 There we go. (laughs) I'm begging for it. 
You can see most of them are from Galilee and would have traveled this route down. Who's from Galilee, by the way? Who's very well known in Galilee? Who's like the most popular rabbi of this day in Galilee? Jesus! All of Jesus' people, all the people who knew Jesus and had heard about Jesus and had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, they've now, they're now all traveling down and right along this road and right in through Bethany. And as they do, the word on the street is this. Jesus is hanging out and spending time and eating and being seen with Lazarus. This would have just reignited everything, friends. All the rumors and hype that surround Jesus, they're now in full force once more. Lazarus being alive was such a source of inspiration and intrigue for the people, such a catalyst for excitement and optimism that the gospel writers tell us this. This is John chapter 12. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, that's in Bethany, and came... Not only because of him, not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. As well. As well as who? As well as Jesus. For on account of him, on account of Lazarus, many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Do you see how this one event has just taken things up a notch and raised things to a whole new level? The reason this is scary is because the hopes and dreams of the Jewish people are on the line. The hopes and dreams of the Jewish people are starting to rise and build again. This whole crowd, this whole group, this massive wave of people moving to Jerusalem. And they brought with it just this this energy of a rabbi who just might be the one who would set them free again. And all of this is moving towards a city that is teeming and surging with religious excitement and anticipation. Jerusalem at Passover. Friends, do you feel the vibe? This is like a flame heading towards a powder keg. Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. So there's actually two donkeys in this story. Um, We forget about the second one most of the time. We'll see about that in just a second. Jesus is now on the move for Jerusalem. He's, He's left Bethany and he's now headed towards the city. But just before he gets there, he stops. He pauses. You see, there's a hill... If we get the next slide, there's a hill that runs, this is the city of Jerusalem right here. There's a hill right here for those of you over there. The, uh, there's a hill that runs just to the east of Jerusalem, right? And you come up, up and over that hill and then you can see the city. Just right over here on the back side of that hill is this teeny weeny little town called Bethphage. You can see it, if you, there, right, there's Bethphage. It's not really on the map. It's just over the map. Bethphage is one of those little towns. Scholars can't even find it. There's no archaeological evidence of Bethphage, and here's why. You know how when sometimes you're driving in the country, and you're looking at your GPS on your phone, or you're looking at the map, and it says there's a town, and you're thinking, oh, let's stop there for lunch. And then you roll into town, only to discover that it's like a one-pump gas station and a stop sign. And that's it. 
or maybe one of those hangy lights that flashes, not a real stoplight, but kind of a stoplight. And there's, it's like, there's, there's a, how much population four, you know, Bethphage, population eight. That's Bethphage. It's just a little one gas station town that barely even existed. And that's where Jesus pauses just before he goes up and over the hill into the city and he pauses to, to find this donkey. Now there's a lot going on with this donkey, so let me just give you the high points here. They're significant. First, this donkey was an intentional and deliberate fulfillment of a very popular and well-known prophecy. This is from Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, even in the, pro- in the prophecy, there's two donkeys. Pretty cool. Um, By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is saying this. If you are looking for the Messiah, if you are looking for the Savior, you're looking for the one who's been promised, it's me. I'm he. I'm here. The time has come. Second thing about this donkey. The Gospel of Mark actually tells us that this donkey has never been ridden before. Now, you can see it there on the screens. Why would this matter? Why would this fact that this, that the fact that this donkey has never been ridden before be important? Well, here's why. In the ancient Near East, animals that had never been ridden were saved or consecrated for very momentous or extremely extraordinary events. And so by specifically choosing this animal, this unridden animal, Jesus is saying this to his disciples and to the crowds. Take notice, because this is going to be a significant, special, sacred event. This is no ordinary Jerusalem entrance, friends. There's something real important about this. And finally, the donkey teaches us about the kind of Messiah that Jesus will be. Now, I've heard people say... That Jesus, he was such a humble guy. He was so just meek and humble that he rode in on a donkey because, you know, not a horse. He rode in on a donkey because the donkey's this lowly, despised, you know, meek animal. And that's why Jesus chose that because, man, he's just so humble. False. Not the point of the donkey. The donkey was not a lowly peasant animal in first century Israel. In fact, the donkey was a noble animal. The donkey was an animal that was often ridden by kings. But the donkey was an animal of peace. A king riding into a city on a horse rode in as a victor. They rode in as a conqueror. One who came with force and might and power. But if a king chose to enter into a city on a donkey, it was the sign that he came in peace. And so Jesus rides in on this donkey proclaiming, if you're looking for the Messiah, I am he. If you think this might not be your average, ordinary Passover, you're right. But if you think I've come to raise a sword and conquer and defeat your Roman oppressors, you're wrong. You see, the Romans were the occupying empire in Israel. They held all the military and political power. And the Jews had a passionate desire for freedom. They longed to be free from the dominion and oppression of the pagan Romans. And revolt 
was always on their mind. They were always waiting for God to send them a deliverer who would lead them to liberty. And they called this deliverer the Messiah. And so already in the story, we get the sense that Jesus might not be the Messiah they expected. He might not be the Savior they're looking for. He is not a freedom fighter who comes riding into Jerusalem on a stallion. No Budweiser Clydesdales in this story, friends. Okay? Jesus has not come to deliver them from Rome. And yet, that is what is on all of their minds during the freedom celebration and the Roman oppression. Okay. Here's another thing we know about Jesus and his entrance in Jerusalem on that day. Jesus enters the city via the Mount of Olives. He takes this this path. He chooses this route very intentionally. He's coming in from the east. Now, in Jesus' day, every single Jew knew that when Messiah came, he would come from the east. It's in all the Messianic prophetic literature. And so every devout Jew would always have one eye fixed to the east, especially at Passover, especially during the celebration of freedom. They would always be looking to the east to see if Messiah would come. In fact, some rabbis, tradition tells us that that during Passover, rabbis would leave the eastern door to the city, the eastern door to the temple, they would leave it open just in case Messiah comes. Always looking for Messiah during Passover. And so here comes Jesus riding in on a donkey like a king from the east. But it's not just how Jesus shows up. Another important fact that kind of sets the tone for Palm Sunday is when Jesus chooses to arrive. Jesus decides very intentionally to make his grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem on a very particular day of the Passover festival. Passover was not just a specific day. There was a day of Passover, but it was actually a week-long festival and celebration. And the particular day of of Passover that Jesus shows up on is called Lamb Selection Day. Now, just as a quick time out here, um, for all you animal lovers, I know the whole animal sacrifice thing seems kind of weird And I feel like we should be against it since we live in Oregon in the 21st century. I am with you. But it's just a fact of how they lived and some customs they had back then. So do not let that trip you up here. Okay. As part of the Passover celebration, each family would choose a lamb and they would offer this lamb as a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of their sins, of the the sins of their family, and just as a way of remembering that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt many centuries ago through the blood of the lamb, right? So it's just their way of remembering that. And they would eat the lamb so that it wasn't, it wasn't wasted, so you could feel better about that, I hope. Anyway, so there's these lambs that are, that are sacrificed to remember the freedom that God provided. And the lamb that the families would sacrifice uh, during Passover... They were all chosen. They were all selected on this very specific day. And that day is today, the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, why do you think Jesus chose Lamb Selection Day to make his entrance into the city of Jerusalem? I hope this one seems pretty obvious to you, but let me give you a clue. Remember back when Jesus first started his ministry, when he kind of launched onto the public scene and he goes down to the Jordan River to get baptized by his cousin, the famous, you know, John the Baptist? What does John say to Jesus when Jesus goes to him in the water to be baptized? This is John chapter 1. Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, look everyone, this is the sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. And now, in this moment, we see Jesus showing up on Lamb Selection Sunday, declaring himself as the Lamb of God, saying, you want to know what kind of a Messiah I am? I'm the kind that, I'm the kind that has come not just to deliver from earthly freedom from Rome, but the kind that has come to bring eternal freedom from God. You see what he's saying to the people? He's saying, what you're looking for in a Messiah falls so far short of who I really am. And now we pick up the story from here. Jesus is at the top of the Mount of Olives, perched on his donkey. Across the Kidron Valley, the valley that runs between the Mount of Olives here and the city, across the Kidron Valley, he can see Jerusalem now. People are everywhere. They are spilling out of the city onto the surrounding hillsides, sleeping, walking, grouping, talking, eating, wherever they can find space. For the first time now, as he, as he crests the hill, the temple is in clear view. And it's beautiful, friends. The temple there, right on the eastern side of the city, was the most predominant structure of the region. And now Jesus can see it. The house of God in God's holy city, the place where he has been journeying towards. And then right next to the temple, perhaps the next most noticeable structure in Jerusalem is this facility called the Fortress of Antonia. The Fortress of Antonia, you can see it there on the map, just to the north of the temple, was built to house Roman soldiers. This fortress represented Roman control, Roman occupation of God's people in God's city. It typically held about 600 soldiers. At Passover, however, because of the heightened electricity in the city and and the tenor and temperature of revolt and revolution, they increased that number to about 1,200 Roman soldiers. 1,200 Roman soldiers in the city of Jerusalem, God's city, constantly reminding the Jews that even though they were there to celebrate freedom and deliverance, they in fact were not free. Do you think this rubbed them maybe a little bit the wrong way? Luke chapter 19. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, now he's heading down into the valley towards the city, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. John chapter 12. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Friends, the word Hosanna, we sang about it earlier. In Hebrew, it means Lord save us or Lord save us now. It was the typical Hebrew cry for help and deliverance. 
Palm branches, which we sort of associate in our world with like paradise and tropical living and like joyful times, right? Not in ancient Israel. Palm branches in Israel were the symbol of political and religious freedom for the nation. Friends, these words I just read, the cries of these people, hear in them not the sweet sound of peaceful praise. This is not a group of people going, Jesus, we love you so much, you're so nice and sweet, we're so happy that you've come to join us for the party. That is not the message of their cries. These are not the praises of a people who understand that their sins will soon be forgiven. No, friends, these are the cries of revolutionaries. These are the cries of people who long to win freedom. These are battle cries. This crowd has and continues to want deliverance from their oppressors. They want revolt. They want rebellion. They want revolution. They want freedom. Luke chapter 19, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, sometimes in church we've had this idea that these religious leaders just kind of got jealous. Like they didn't like the fact that the people really liked Jesus. And they certainly didn't. But there's so much more to these comments. There's so much more to their concern. There's so much more to their rebuke of Jesus here. They are not worried that the people are having too much fun. They are not worried that the people like Jesus too much. They are not even worried that Jesus might die on the cross and save the world from its sin. They're not going to Jesus going, Jesus, if the people keep shouting this way, you're going to be in big trouble. They don't care about Jesus. They want him dead. Here's why they're concerned. They thought they were looking at war. They thought they were looking at blood in the streets. They thought that like it happened in the past, at any minute, hundreds of fully armed Roman soldiers might come charging out of the fortress of Antonia, out of the city, and massacre the crowds because hails of kings and kingdoms were not something the Romans took lightly. For the Romans, there's only one king, and he lives in Rome. And you start messing with that and claiming to be king, and you are going down, and they would take you down at all cost. Watch movies about the Romans during this time period to get a sense of how brutal they were. These religious leaders think, Jesus, if you don't calm this crowd down, we are going to have a massive massacre over Passover this year. And then classic Jesus, how does he respond to this, this command, this challenge by the Pharisees, the religious leaders? He responds with one of the most beautiful and profound verses in the entire Bible. Here's what he says. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If these people do not hail me, if they do not cheer, if they are not overwhelmed with joy, then the very rocks at our feet will cry out on their behalf. It is Jesus' way of expressing what I'm about to do the historic event about to take place at this time and in this city and on this Passover, the eternal significance of what is going to happen at this celebration is so enormous and worthy of praise that if these people don't sing and shout, the dead and lifeless stones will be forced to do it for them. He's saying, deliverance from the Romans, freedom for Jerusalem, an earthly king and kingdom, that is nothing compared to the immensity of what is about to happen here. Jesus proclaims, 
the victory I'm about to win holds so much more significance than defeating 1,200 Roman soldiers that you can't even comprehend the kind of praise and acclamation that it deserves. In fact, what Jesus is intending to do is so deserving of devotion and rightful of recognition and worthy of worship that if these people on this hillside do not lift their voices and cry out, the very stones beneath their feet will be forced to do it in their stead. Do you see, Jesus is telling us here, this is going to be huge. The events of this week are overwhelming, incomprehensible to you even. And then finally, Luke records for us one of the most significant and overlooked sections, I believe, in all of Scripture. This is Luke chapter 19. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you you see while the people cheered on that day while they waved palm branches and shouted Hosanna Jesus wept The word here, just so you've got the right picture in your mind, is Cleo. It literally means to openly mourn, to openly sob, to lament. And Jesus sits on his donkey, and amidst the crowd that cheers for him, as he looks out over the city of Jerusalem, he weeps. Let me ask you this, friends. Is Palm Sunday a happy day or a sad day? Is Palm Sunday a victorious day or a day of disappointment for God? I think it's the latter, and here's why. Jesus knows. He knows what will happen. He knows that in AD 70, 40 years later, Nero, the Roman emperor, will unleash his Roman generals on the people of Israel, and not only will the city of Jerusalem be completely annihilated, but hundreds of thousands of Jewish men, women, and children will be brutally put to death in the very place he stands in that moment. And so Jesus sits on a donkey, an animal of peace, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he weeps. He weeps for what will happen. He weeps because as he hears the cries of the crowd, Hosanna, 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 he hears the cries of a people who are so focused, hear this friends, who are so focused on an earthly kingdom that they will stop at nothing to get it. And Jesus knows this, there is not an earthly kingdom in this world that will not fall and fail and crumble. Do you understand? Catch this reality. The The kingdom that these people cheering for Jesus on this hillside sought was not the kingdom he offered. The kingdom they promote, the kingdom they long for, is not the kingdom he has come to bring. Do we understand that the Jesus they hailed and praised on that day was not the Jesus he was? He was their version of Jesus. He was the Jesus they wanted him to be, but he was not the real Jesus. They did not see, they did not understand the real Jesus. And so I believe the critical question that Palm Sunday begs us to answer is this. Do we see the real Jesus? 
Are we praising the real Jesus? Do we see him for who he really is? Do we really know his heart and will for our lives? Or or do we just seek him in a way that he might give us what we want? Do we praise him because we believe he will help us build our kingdoms and give us what we want and make things the way we think they should be? Or do we praise Him in full submission of the fact that we are going to have to get on His side and enter into His will, not Him into our will? You see, the crowds on this day, friends, they they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the guy who's going to come and do what we want Him to do. And He doesn't. And so days later, they will yell, Crucify him! Crucify him! In other words, he didn't do what we wanted him to do, so kill him! Both cries have embedded into them this message. Give us what we want, God. Give us what we want, God. Not your will, but our will be done, God. Give us what we want and we'll praise you, but if you don't... You're dead to us. Friends, like the crowds on that day, have we created a Jesus that simply fits into our own agenda? A Jesus that will help us live the life that we want to live and achieve the goals that we want to achieve? Or do we worship a Jesus who has his agenda and we say, God, help us to join your kingdom, your will, your plan? That's what Palm Sunday is about. Knowing on this day what will give us peace. And what will give us peace is not our plans, but his plan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this tragic day in so many ways. This day that seemed so full of hope. And yet, underneath it all, were these agendas and selfish dreams and misunderstandings that caused you to weep. God, may that not be true of us. May we see past our own desires and wants and kingdoms and see through all that to you and who you really are and who you long for us to be in the life of peace and hope and joy that you offer us when we surrender our will to yours. May that define our week this week. May that define our lives. May that define Palm Sunday in our minds. We pray all this. In the wonderful name of your Son. Amen.